for our midweek Bible study, we invite you to come and invite somebody if you'd like. Uh, next Sunday, uh, David Rosales will be here sharing a message with us as we travel to the Middle East, and uh, then we'll be back before Christmas. Now, um, if you go out today through the east side, especially the east road, you'll notice a couple people selling Christmas trees out on our back lot. Those are some missionaries of ours who have traveled the world and are back in town visiting their family and to raise uh, some support, some money for their uh, mission operation. Kevin and Laura Stark, who've been here since we started, uh, are back on the back 10 acres uh, selling some Christmas trees. So if you haven't gotten one yet and you want to support their ministry, um, go for it. Even if you already have a tree, you might want to buy one and plant it in your front yard. And uh, it won't last but a few weeks, but it'll look good for a while. (laughs) Would you turn in your Bibles now to Galatians chapter 4? I've always wanted to teach a message on these verses, especially around Christmas. And since we have just a few weeks left, I wanted to just start on it a little bit early and uh, go through a text in Galatians chapter 4. Let's pray. Father... Our focus, our attention, our thoughts, we ask you to take them captive as we focus upon Jesus Christ, the mystery of godliness, God manifest in the flesh. We thank you, Lord, for this season, how we love it, the fact that we celebrate your greatest gift, In your Son. It's in His name we pray. Amen. I do love the Christmas season. I love the smells, the sights, the sounds. I love what it stands for most of all. Lately it's been so warm, it hasn't even felt like Christmas. And this last week I put lights up on our house and on a front tree in the front yard and Nathan and my wife Lenny were gone and they came home that evening and saw the lights on and Nathan was so thrilled just to you know, see those lights because he had a short sleeve t-shirt on and his shorts. He didn't feel like it was Christmas. And when I tucked him into bed that night, his prayer was this, Oh, dear Jesus, thank you that it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. <laughs> In Galatians chapter 4, Paul tells us about Christmas by looking at the big picture. And he tells us what makes Christmas so right. What is so right about it? After all, Every religion celebrates the birth of its leader or its founder. But why is this event of Jesus being born so unique? What makes it so special? Why is it that this event changed the course of human history? Why is it that Christianity spread like it did, when it did, and where it did? And why is it that still to this day, people speak of having an experience with Jesus Christ as a life-changing experience? And so we look at what makes Christmas so right this morning. You've got to admit, no one has influenced the world like Jesus has. For example, Socrates taught for 40 years, Plato for 50 years, Aristotle for 40 years. And yet all of them combined couldn't hold a candle to the influence of Jesus who taught on this earth for only three and a half years. Jesus painted no picture, but the great artists like Michelangelo, Raphael, Leonardo were inspired by Jesus, and their greatest works had to do with Him. Jesus was not 
a writer of poetry or a journalist. Yet people like Dante, Milton, and thousands of others took their cues from Jesus. Jesus Christ composed no music, but the greats like Handel, Bach, Beethoven, Mendelssohn were inspired by Jesus Christ. Even the French Emperor Napoleon said, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I myself have founded great empires, but Jesus alone founded His empire upon love, and to this very day millions would die for Him. Jesus Christ was more than a man. What Paul does in Galatians is he goes back into Jewish history, surveys it, and especially the law of Moses. And then he comes to, in verse 4 and 5, Jesus Christ coming into the world. And what he's telling people to do, basically, is graduate, grow up in their faith. You see, there was a problem in this church. There were legalistic people called Judaizers. We still have them around today. They're not called Judaizers. They're just legalistic people. And this group of people had no grace, had no joy, really had no peace. They were trying to move the church back into the parameters of legalism, which is always a step backwards. And so Paul basically says, folks, it's time to graduate. You've been in kindergarten for 1,300 years under the law of Moses. And it was good. It served its purpose. But it's time to get out of the ABCs and graduate from the law into the new covenant of Jesus Christ. So we pick it up in verse 1 for the sake of context. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is the master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. When Jesus was sent into the world by the Father, it was the capstone of history. It's what all humanity for years had been yearning for. Christmas, you might say, is God coming down the stairs of heaven with a baby in His arms. But what makes that event so right? Well, our text tells us that first of all, it was the right season. Verse 4, he says, In the fullness of time, or when the fullness of the time had come. This refers to an end of a period of preparation. It's like picture a cup that is filled to the brim. The time was just right for Jesus Christ to come. The law was good, but the law was over. It had been filled up. A new era called the New Covenant was upon the nation of Israel as God sent His Son. The birth of Jesus Christ was the hinge of history. Time forever changed. In fact, before that event, we to this day call it B.C., before Christ. And we mark time after that event by A.D., which means Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. There is not a document that is legal. There is not a check that is valid unless it bears testimony to that event 
the birth of Jesus Christ by putting the date on it. It was in the fullness of time. See, Jesus was not a man ahead of his time. Jesus was not behind the times. Jesus was right on time. He was punctual. In fact, even when he spoke, he speaks of this fact that he's on a time clock. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. At the wedding feast of Cana, when his mother tried to sort of arrange things, he said, Woman, my time, my hour is not yet come. Another portion of the Gospels, John chapter 7, we're told that his enemies tried to take him, but his hour had not yet come. Then finally, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was about to be offered up for the sins of the world, he prayed, Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Is God ever late? Or is he always on time? Does he keep his appointments? When I grew up, my dad meant well, had good intentions, but he was a busy guy. He'd say things like, I'll pick you up after school. And he did. A long time after school ended. I was the last kid by the flagpole. Oftentimes I was the last kid at the baseball game because we got there late or he picked me up late. I knew he'd be there, but I didn't know exactly when. And he had a 24-hour period that meant today. It could be any of those hours. But God is right on time. Peter said, God is not slack concerning His promise. It was the fullness of time. Charles Spurgeon said, There are no loose threads in the providence of God. No stitches are dropped. No events are left to chance. The great clock of the universe keeps good time. And the whole machinery of providence moves with unerring punctuality. You see, everything was just right for the coming of the Messiah. First of all, the time was right religiously. I don't know if you knew this or not, but in the Greek and Roman world at large, there was this empty hole, this yearning, because all of the gods that the Greeks spoke about were losing their grip on the common people. They started seeing it as a bunch of myths. Ah, those things, they're not really real. And the people, the common people, were yearning for some experience that would fill the void in their life. Even among the Jews in the synagogues, now that the synagogue developed after the Babylonian captivity and Jews were meeting all over the world. This meant that every Jewish synagogue had a copy of the Old Testament Scriptures, which meant as they read the Scriptures, they read the prophecies of the Messiah, they yearned in their hearts for Him. And just the fact that there was the institution called the synagogue would facilitate the Son of God going from synagogue to synagogue in Galilee and throughout Israel to give his message. And for Paul, the rabbi, to go throughout the Roman world, beginning in the synagogues of the Jews, spreading the gospel. So the time was right religiously, but also the time was right culturally. The world, for the first time, started experiencing a cohesion and a unity among themselves. Because, for the first time, a common language was invoked, the Greek language. You see, there was a guy several years before this named Alexander who thought he was really great. Alexander had a vision of spreading Greek culture and Greek language throughout the world which he conquered. He did a pretty good job of it. 
And when he conquered Jerusalem in about 332 B.C., he encouraged the Jewish elders to spread Judaism culturally around the world as well. So what you had at the time of Christ is pockets of Greek-speaking Jews all over the world. And the New Testament was written in Greek. And I've got to say, the Greek language, from what little I know about it, is the most precise, exact, filled with expression language that has ever existed and still exists today. And it's no coincidence that it was at that time that the New Testament was written. I don't want to give you a language lesson, but let me just fill you in on what this language is all about. In the Greek language, there are nouns that are masculine, feminine, and neuter. But not only is there the gender, but there is a thing called case, and the words are different according to the case. And there's five cases, nominative, accusative, genitive, ablative, instrumental, locative. And each word is a little bit different. It means something a little bit different. And every adjective has to agree with each noun in gender, in number, and in case. Then there's the verbs of the Greek language, which are unlike any verb structure that we have in any language. The uh, verbs of Greek have mood. They tell if the action is real or potential. And so you have moods like indicative, subjunctive, imperative. The wording is different. Also, the verbs have tense, past, present, and future. They describe the kind of action in a unique way. One word describes a continuous action. Another word describes an action fully completed. Another word describes the action in an intermittent action sense. Very, very precise, very exact. It was no coincidence that it was at this time with this language that the mind of God was expressed to mankind. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The time was also right in a political sense. You see, Rome had conquered the world. They were the big dog on the block. And everybody was under their dominion. And they brought a sense of stability to the world. They imposed what they called the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace. It was an enforced peace, but it was a peace nonetheless. And what Rome did, and it had never been done before, is in a massive construction, they built roads from one part of the Roman Empire to the other road of, uh, part of the Roman Empire, from city to city, so that you could literally travel from one part of the known world to another part of the known world on Roman roads being guaranteed Roman peace because they had soldiers that garrisoned all of the roads to protect the travelers. So not only do you have the most precise language ever given that the New Testament could be written in, but you have a way to get that message throughout all of the empire. And Paul and the other apostles took advantage of it. It was also right prophetically, prophetically. There was no time like this time among the Jews. Now, if you know anything about Jewish history, you know that the central character of Judaism is who? The Messiah. They always spoke about Messiah coming. The Jewish prayer is, I believe in the coming of Messiah, and though he tarry, yet shall I wait for him every coming day. They always prayed that. 
But history shows us that there was never more an intense yearning among the Jews than there was right before the coming of Jesus Christ. I found some writings by a rabbi, Jewish rabbi. His name is Rabbi Abba Hillel Silver. He wrote a book called The History of Messianic Speculation in Israel. This is what he says, quote, Prior to the first century CE, Common Era, or AD, the Messianic interest was not excessive. The first century, however, especially the generation before the destruction of the Second Temple, which was the generation of Jesus, witnessed a remarkable outburst of Messianic emotionalism when Jesus came into Galilee spreading the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. He was voicing the opinion universally held that the age of the kingdom of God was at hand. The Messiah was expected around the second quarter of the first century CE, which exactly was when Jesus came. Now, there's a few reasons for this. The Jews knew that Daniel predicted the Messiah in Daniel chapter 9. It's called Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the Prince. And a timetable is given. Jerusalem will be built, the wall, the street. And after a certain period, the Messiah would come. But according to the prophecy in Daniel and Jeremiah, the Messiah must come while the temple still exists before it is torn down. One rabbi who lived 50 years before Jesus, Rabbi Nehumius, said that the time fixed by Daniel could not go beyond 50 years. And he was right. Jesus did come within that time. There's another prediction. There are many of them, but I'm just going to cover one more. In Genesis chapter 49, it's one of those verses that sort of escapes us as we read it, but it never escaped the eyes of the rabbis. Genesis 49.10, Jacob predicts the outcome of Judah, his son. The tribe of Judah is the tribe Jesus came from. And the prophecy is this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes and the obedience of the people shall be unto him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, the tribe of Judah, the southern kingdom. The word scepter means tribal identity, the right to enforce the law of Moses, self-governance. The word Shiloh means to whom it belongs. And rabbis for centuries have agreed that the word Shiloh refers to the coming of the Messiah. And the way they translated that verse was this, the national identity, which includes the right to enforce the Mosaic law, will not depart from Judah until the Messiah comes. Ah, but now we have a problem. Because in the first quarter of the first century, Rome comes in and removes the scepter from Judah, saying to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish governing body, you have no right to rule. We take away the right to enforce capital punishment upon blasphemy away from you it is now property of the Roman government now the Talmud the Jewish writings tell us that when this happened that the Jewish elders marched around Jerusalem they put sackcloth on their bodies ashes on their heads and they said they shouted out loud the scepter has departed from Judah but Shiloh has not come But while they were mourning in the streets of Jerusalem, a few miles north in the streets of Nazareth, a young Jewish boy was growing up named Jesus. Shiloh had come. 
and soon he would be revealed upon the scene. The time was right. It was the fullness of time that God sent his son. And as we notice in verse 4, it was the right action. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. The word sent suggests being sent out from his pre-existent state. The Knox translation says, God sent out his son on a mission to us. Let me clear something up. Jesus was always with the Father. There always was the Trinity before Jesus came to this earth. But when he came to this earth in the form of sinful flesh or in the likeness of sinful flesh, though he was himself sinless, he took that role of the Son of God being sent. That was predicted by Isaiah chapter 9. We read it every year. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The Father acknowledged this when Jesus was being baptized. When Jesus was being baptized, what did the Father say as the heavens opened up? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus acknowledged it as well. He told Nicodemus how to be saved, how to be born again. He said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish. God sent His Son. That was the right action. Jesus came, you might say, incognito, leaving the glories of heaven behind, being clothed in the garments of humanity, walking upon this sinful earth. Now talk about a cross-cultural experience. I know missionaries who go overseas, and I've been overseas, and I've spent several months at a time over there, and I'll tell you what, it is different to be in a different culture. It's tough to make the adjustment. But imagine coming from heaven to earth, as a peasant child growing up in a poor home walking among the streets of Bethlehem, Nazareth, Galilee, Jerusalem. There's a great story that comes to us from the uh, uh, Middle East. They are fond of telling about Shah Abbas, a great ruler who was fond of disguising himself like a peasant and would walk among the common people. One day it is said that he put on the robes of the commoner and he went to the person who was the lowest worker in his palace, the guy who tended the furnace of the palace. Very meager, very poor. And he befriended him, and day after day he would sit until finally one day the furnace tender decided to share his meager lunch of bread and water with the Shah. They shared their lives as much as the Shah could. He didn't disclose who he was. But they started kindling this warm friendship with each other. Until finally, one day, the Shah couldn't hold back any longer. He's told the man who he was. He was his ruler. He was his king. The man just stared at him. The Shah said, Don't you understand? Don't you know what this means? I, I could give you a city. I could make you ruler. I could make you rich and famous. And the man answered back, Yes, my lord, I understand. But what is this that you have done to leave your glorious surroundings to sit with me in this dark place, to partake of my coarse fare, and to care whether my heart is glad or sorry. Even you can give nothing more precious than this. On others you may bestow rich presents, but to me you have given yourself. It only remains to ask that you never withdraw this gift of your friendship. God sent forth His Son or sent Him on a mission to come to this earth 
Jesus was God spelled out in a language that even you and I could understand. The Son of God. What that means is that when you lean upon Jesus Christ for your salvation or in your circumstances for a trial, you're not leaning on some amateur Savior, some would-be Messiah, some self-proclaimed person. God sent His Son Jesus. God did not send Buddha, Muhammad, or a thousand other emanations. The one that God sent to fully represent Him was His own Son from heaven, sent out from a pre-existent state with the Father to this earth. So it was the right season. It was the right action. Thirdly, it was the right person. Notice how Jesus is described. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. The idea of this verse is that Jesus was fully God, sent from the Father, fully man, born of a woman, under the law. Notice, He was born not of a man, but He was born of a woman. That construction is important. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit not by Joseph, in the womb of Mary. So you have Jesus Christ, not a good man, but the God-man. He was fully God, fully man. He had to be fully God so that His sacrifice would have the ultimate worth to buy salvation. He had to be man to fully represent us in all that we go through. Paul the Apostle in Philippians chapter 2 describes this mystery of Christmas said Jesus was in the form of God and didn't think it robbery to be equal with God. Jesus was equal with God. Listen, Jesus never became God. It's not that He donned a God consciousness at His baptism that stayed with Him for three years and the God consciousness left at His death. He didn't become God. He always was God. He was God before He got to earth. He was God when He was born in a womb. He, uh, from the womb. He was God as He walked the streets of the city. And He was God on the cross. He always was and still is God. Jesus, when He came to the earth, laid aside something. He emptied Himself, the Scripture says. He didn't empty Himself of His deity, but He laid aside His glory. His deity was veiled, but not void. You see, there's a difference. The song that we sing every year at Christmas, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, written by Wesley himself. One of the verses, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hailed incarnate deity. It was veiled. Now there was a time when the veil was opened up. The disciples saw who Jesus was in all of His glory. I'm thinking of the Mount of Transfiguration. Talk about a mind-blowing experience. They took a little walk that day in Galilee and Peter, James, and John were going up a mountain just having a normal conversation. Suddenly Jesus is transfigured before them and shines like the sun. We go, wow, what a miracle. Now, I don't know that it's a miracle that Jesus shined. I think it's a miracle that He didn't shine all the time. But it was veiled. The veil was just taken aside and they were able to see His fullness for that short period of time. Forget about this nonsense that some suggest that Jesus never claimed to be God. As the Jehovah Witnesses or other cultists would say, well, Jesus never claimed to be deity. Baloney! When Thomas knelt down after the resurrection, he said, my Lord and my God. Jesus didn't say, no, I don't receive that, Thomas. Let me change your theology. I'm really not... He received that worship. 
There was a time when in Luke chapter 5, that crippled man was let down through that hole in the roof. And Jesus looked at him and said, Son or man, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus' enemies rightly asserted, No one can forgive sins except God alone. They were right. And Jesus didn't argue with them. It's right. No one can forgive sins but God alone. Then there was that time in John chapter 8 when Jesus said something that really ticked his enemies off. He said, uh, as they came to him and said, Who do you think you are? I mean, you greater than Abraham, our father? Jesus said, Let me tell you something. Before Abraham was, I am. I am. The eternal existent construction. Ego me. That's why it says they took up stones to kill him. They knew who he was claiming to be. A few chapters before that, it says the Pharisees sought to kill him because he said God was his father, continually making himself equal with God. But Paul said not only was he equal with God, but he emptied himself and he became a man, born of a woman, born under the law, under the restraints of the law of Moses, keeping the law of Moses. When Jesus walked this earth, he was tired, hungry, lonely. He even wept over the sins and the unbelief, and he wept at the grave of Lazarus. Jesus was the God-man. God sent forth his Son. And before we get to our final point here, it brings up something about Christianity. Christianity is different from all of the other so-called roads to God because it revolves around a person, not a code of ethics, not a set of teachings. Christianity has its creeds, but it is not a creed. It has its rights, but it's not a right. It has its institutions, but it's not an institution. Christianity is Christ. Well, how do you know that? Well, what did Jesus say? Jesus said to his disciples, follow me. He didn't say, now follow these teachings of mine. He said, follow me. He also said, I am the way, the truth, the life. He didn't say, my teachings are the way, the truth, the life, or a way, a truth, a life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody goes to the Father unless they come through me. That's pretty exclusive. Jesus never said, as many as receive this fine code of ethics will become a child of God. He said, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. Finally, in verses 5 and 6, what makes Christmas so right? Well, it was the right reason. Look at verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. This is really what makes Christmas so right. The focus of Christmas really is not that Jesus came. It's why Jesus came. That is always the focus of Christmas. You see, there's no salvation in the birth of Jesus Christ. There's no salvation in the sinless, perfect example and flawless life of Jesus Christ. Someone had to die. That's why He came. And the word is to redeem, which means to 
release slaves who are under bondage by paying a price. That's what the word redeem means. To let a slave go free once you've paid the price. To buy back. Which answers the kind of question that some people ask whenever you mention Jesus coming to die for their sin. What kind of a father would let his only son come here and die that kind of death? I'll tell you what kind of a father. kind of a father who wanted to make you his son and you his daughter who so loved the world with an unfathomable kind of love that he would let Jesus be slaughtered on a Roman cross so that you could go to heaven and be with him. That's that kind of love. You might say the Son of God became a man so that men could become sons of God. That's the reason. That's what makes Christmas so right, to redeem us from that curse. This is the side of the Christmas story that's not often told. The Christmas story kind of begins and ends with Jesus being born in a manger. It's a beautiful story. You can imagine that sweet little baby Jesus laying down his sweet head as we sing Silent Night. And that's beautiful. But let's tell the whole story. Those cute little pink baby hands had a purpose. The purpose was so that Roman spikes could be driven through them those little baby feet that kicked in the manger had a purpose to walk up a dusty hill and have spikes driven through them. That sweet little head was meant to have the crown of thorns put upon it that his brow might bleed so that by his stripes we would be healed. That's the side of the Christmas story that isn't often told because that's the side of the Christmas story that people don't want to hear. I heard of an amusing little story of a family that would get in the car every year and drive around the city, look at lights, look at decorations, look at the nativity sets. It's a great tradition. They pulled up to one church and a little girl got out and her grandmother and they walked up to the manger scene that the church had. It was the most authentic manger scene of any other one in town. And the grandmother said, Isn't that just beautiful? Look, you've got all the animals and there's Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus. And the little girl said, Yes, Grandma, it is beautiful, but there's something that bothers me. When is Jesus ever going to grow up? He's the same size he was last year. (laughs) You can understand her dilemma. He's at a certain age. You'd think like that. But you know, I found that a lot of people think like that as adults. They don't want him to grow up. They want to leave him as a baby in a manger. Packaged, predictable, sweet. But when Jesus grew up, he made demands on you and I. He said... I'm the way, the truth, the life. I've come to die for the sins of the world. And that was his purpose. You can't have Christmas without seeing the cross to redeem us for himself. Now what this does, according to this text, is places us in God's family as sons, adoption. To place us as adult sons, to be his children. That's the reason of Christmas. So that we can say, Abba. Abba is the diminutive form of the Aramaic word father. would be best translated Papa, Daddy. In other words, the reason for Christmas is so that we can have an intimate, personal relationship with the living God. That by Jesus coming at the right time, being the right person in the right action, for the right reason, would make you his child and an intimate, close, personal relationship would exist. A Christmas card was put out a few years ago 
called What If Jesus Never Came. It was based on a story called What If Jesus Never Came. In the Christmas card, and the story depicts a pastor who was in his study preparing his Christmas message, and he fell asleep and he had a dream. And the story goes like this. In his dream, he found himself looking through his home, but there were no little stockings in the chimney corner, no Christmas bells or wreaths of holly, and no Christ to comfort, gladden, and save. So he walked out to the street, but there was no church with its spire pointing up to heaven. He came back and sat down in his library, but every book about the Savior had disappeared. The doorbell rang, and a messenger asked the preacher to visit his poor, dying mother. He hastened with the weeping child, and as he reached the home, he sat down and said, I have something here that will comfort you. He opened his Bible to look for a familiar promise, but it ended with Malachi. There was no gospel, and no promise of hope and salvation, and he could only bow his head and weep with her in bitter despair. Two days later, he stood beside her coffin, conducted the funeral service. There was no message of consolation. There was no hope of heaven. Aren't you glad that was only a dream? Jesus did come. What makes Christmas so right? Everything about it is right. It was at the right season, the fullness of time. You couldn't ask for a better time. It was the right action. God didn't send thousands of emissaries, ambassadors. He sent His Son, the right person, born of a woman, virgin born, born under the law to fulfill the Jewish law for the right reason, to buy you back out of slavery. That's what's awesome about Christmas. That's what all those lights point to, the light of the world. It's come to brighten and fill our days with hope. Let's pray. Father, once again we have considered the subject of the Bible itself, your Son. The Old Testament pointed to him. The New Testament shows that he has come and that he still lives even after his death. And even as the Bible revolves around Jesus, I pray that our lives would revolve around him, that this season would revolve around him, I pray, Lord, that as believers, you'd help us in the time in which we live. Having all of the tools of communication at our disposal, radio, television, printed material, books, Bibles, the Internet, all of those things, to let Jesus be known to our lips and to our lives. Lord, I pray also for those who have come this morning, who know about you, who celebrate the season, but have not been bought back from the slave market. I pray you would redeem. I pray this would be their fullness of time when you reached out to them in time and space and showed your love to them that they would commit their lives by repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We celebrate the season but have not been bought back from the slave market. I pray you would redeem. I pray this would be their fullness of time when you reached out to them in time and space and showed your love to them that they would commit their lives by repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.